Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. On April 21st, 1993, the Walker Texas Rangers series debuted on CBS. Now Chuck Norris was a roundhouse dealing fool preferring to take the fight to the bad guys instead of cowering at their feet. A similar fight in the NFL culminated 15 days earlier for the greatest free agent signing of all time. There was a high tension between NFL players and owners for many years, but out of this fight was born the modern era of free agency. And the biggest moment was the signing of a man referred as the Minister of Defense. Welcome football history dude podcast where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the nfl your host is arnie chapman football is his passion and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron so hop on board his delorean and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour this time as we step up for delorean the date is april 6th 1993 at 1 p.m. in Knoxville, Tennessee. You and I are witnessing history. Reggie White, he agrees on this time to verbally sign with the Green Bay Packers for a four-year contract worth $17 million. But why am I talking about this? Why is that important? I mean, that's not even that much money compared to nowadays, right? I mean, take my boy, Trey Flowers. As you may know, I am a huge Detroit Lions fan. He signed a five-year contract for $90 million. And nobody's ever going to compare him at this time to the Minister of Defense. Although, I hope he reaches that level, of course, because, uh, hey, let's get us to the Super Bowl. However, this is normal nowadays. That defensive end, Trey Flowers, making $90 million over five years. It's just like, okay, uh, business as usual, keep going forward. Let's proceed with the season coming up here. Let's get to the weight room so we can prepare for the next guy. But back in 1993, that was not the case. You see, this was an important year, because this was really the first year where NFL players were truly free agents. And Reggie White, (laughs) no, he was the most significant free agent signing in NFL history. But this is a part two of a two-part series covering NFL free agency and the kind of history about it. So I suggest if you hadn't listened to the previous episode, go back and listen to the last episode. That kind of covers what we did moving from 1920, the birth of the league, all the way until now where we are at the cusp of modern free agency. But let me give you a quick little catch-up. You see, at the beginning, the players, they basically had no rights. It was just whatever team you are on, you're just stuck with them unless the owner decides to get rid of you for some reason. But in 1947, it changed a little bit. There was something called the one-year option rule. Teams could automatically up your contract for one more year, kind of like the franchise tags nowadays and that kind of thing. But in 1962, This is when we really had our first real free agent, where a guy decided he was going to go to another team from the 49ers to the Colts. 
But this was not cool or kosher by the NFL owners, so it led to what they called the Rizal Rule that allowed the commissioner at the time, Pete Rizal, to award compensation seen fit by himself to the forfeiting team if they didn't come up with something new. Basically, it's just like a stri- it's still like a trade. You sign a player, you're going to have to give something up. And if you can't figure it out amongst yourselves, you know, little children, your daddy's going to come in and I'm just going to take everybody's toys, just throw them around the room and I'm going to give them over to this guy. And let's just say a lot of the players, they were timid because they didn't really get a chance to deal with real free agency. So not a whole lot of players jumped ship. But in 1974, things started to heat up. There were major steps forward also in 1976 for the players where they won an antitrust suit. There was something that was called Plan B free agency after this uh, antitrust suit that said, well, option A doesn't work. Let's go with plan B. Call an audible, right? Well, 1989, the players decided to fight that some more. And then plan B, because uh, the reason why they wanted to fight it, it still sucked. You know, top 37 players from the teams were still off limits. So in 1992, individual players won a lawsuit against the NFL, leading to this lawsuit that I'm about to talk about in 1993 and Reggie White. But let's take it a step back, though. What gave Reggie White the opportunity to be the most significant free agent in NFL history? Well, how about you and I take that DeLorean back a little bit. We're going to go to September 21st, 1992. This is the date where I don't know about you, if I was sitting there on either side, the NFL or the player side, there's a lot of tension. I don't think I want to be in the room. But this is when five named plaintiffs filed a class action lawsuit against the NFL. They were seeking free agency for, of course, themselves but basically about 300 players. And these named plaintiffs were Michael Buck, Hardy Nickerson, Van McElroy, Dave Duerson, and then one other dude. Let's just say it wasn't and one other dude, it was the dude. This is the guy that really mattered the most. It was all-world defensive end from the Philadelphia Eagles, Mr. Reggie White, the Minister of Defense. And he was going to bring his ministry, that is the players, along with him, into the promised land of free agency. But how did we get there? How did it happen? They would file this in the same court that shot down that plan B as a free agency option over there in the Minnesota federal court system. And I have a couple quotes that came right after this filing, one from the NFLPA, which was the associate executive Gene Upshaw. He said, this is the day NFL players have been waiting for. And the other comes from Joe Brown, VP for communications of the NFL. And he said, it is unfortunate for all sides that the NFLPA has chosen additional litigation rather than additional negotiation towards a new partnership between the clubs and their players. So bullets are thrown, punches are flying. I think that we're back in a battle here. We have a war again against the players, the NFLPA, as well as the NFL owners. And this time, federal judge Doty, he got to the point where he had a threatened implementation for his own plan of free agency. Who knew where it was going to go? Was it going to greatly benefit just the players? Was it going to greatly benefit the NFL? Or was it going to crush the league altogether? So they ultimately had to get to a point where they were going to agree on something. Maybe it wasn't a 100% win-win for either side, but they had to get in the middle. So on February 26, 1993, the plaintiffs and defendants entered into a stipulation and settlement agreement. You know, they're all like, let's get this thing done already. We got a season to get ready for. Things would happen, they'd go back and forth, and then finally, on March 23rd, a letter from Richard A. Berthelsen of the NFLPA to then-Commissioner Paul Tagliabue of the NFL stated that 
A majority of the players on 1992 season-ending rosters have now signed cards authorizing the NFLPA to represent them for purposes of collective bargaining. So they're stating their intentions. They're saying, we are now representing all the players as an association, and officially, when we have this collective bargaining agreement, you're going to deal with me. So, of course, Commissioner Paul Tagliabue had to check it over, look it over. I'm sure all of his lawyers were there, and they finally, after using a third-party source to authenticate cards, which was the American Arbitration Association, they drafted a letter on March 29th from Harold Henderson representing the NFL to Gene Upshaw representing NFLPA, voluntarily recognizing that the NFLPA, okay, fine, we will work with you for the CBA discussions. But like I've said before, I mean, this is a long time coming. We're talking back in, well, even before the 1970s, but really the 1974 to 76 era, that's when it really, really, really heated up. So this is a long time coming. So these months of fall in 1992 and winter months of 1993, even though that seemed like a long time, we're talking even longer time where we're finally getting close to something where the owners and the players are going to agree on something as far as a true free agency. So finally, the owners did agree. But Let's just say they didn't agree because they were throwing down their arms and they were just going to let the players walk all over them. There were three key provisions in this agreement that the owners were like, fine, we will do this thing because we need to get back to business. We need to start bringing the fans to the stands this upcoming year so we can make some more cheddar. Now, the first reason, there were still restrictions placed on players, as in restricted free agents. At the time, it was less than five years of experience, you're considered a restricted free agent. So we got to get the chance to reap the rewards of our investment from the draft. Nowadays, it's a little bit different. I'm going to go through the current situation for restricted free agents and unrestricted free agents just to kind of give you an idea of how it works. Now, the restricted free agent model is set up where a player is restricted free agent if they have accrued three seasons. If they've accrued more than that, whatever. You are unrestricted free agent. Do whatever you want. You can go and chase that big money. You can go chase a Super Bowl ring. You can go try to live in whatever Houston area, maybe get some cousins down there. You just want to hang out on the weekends. I don't know. Just do what you got to do. It's up to you. However, if you've only accrued three seasons or even less, well, uh, you don't have as many options because there's a restriction placed on you. And this is an explanation of what restricted free agent means from the NFL's website. Now, this is a long one, so stick with me. A player with three accrued seasons and an expired contract. RFAs are free to negotiate and sign with any team, but their original team can offer them one of various qualifying offers, also known as tenders, that come with a right of first refusal and or draft pick compensation. These amounts change by a minimum of 5% and a maximum of 10% based on the salary cap each year. Teams must submit these tenders before 4 p.m. Eastern on March 13th. Tenders are classified as follows. I mean, that was for this year, the 13th part. But here are the various tenders that can be placed upon the players. The first one is a first-round tender. And this year, that one-year contract is worth greater of $4.407 million, 110% of the player's base salary. Now, a player can still negotiate with other teams. However, if that current team doesn't match an offer sheet of the new team, then that current team steals a first-rounder from the signing team. So I'm like, yeah, that's a tough pill to swallow. Not gonna happen a whole lot if you get placed a first-round tender on you. But there's also a second round tender. This is a one-year contract worth $3.095 million, or 110% of the base salary. Of course, the new team would give up the second round. The third option is what they call an original round tender. This would be worth a one-year contract between 2.025 
or if it's greater, 110% of the base salary. The new team would compensate the current team for basically whatever round that player was drafted in. So if you have a 7th rounder, well, I'm only giving up a 7th round draft pick. Then there's what they call the right of first refusal. This would be the same salary as that original round tender. But if the team doesn't match the offer for the the new team, well, there's going to be no picks that are included in this one. So it's not as, there's really no pill to swallow for that one. The final would be an exclusive rights free agent. This pertains to a player that has accrued less than three seasons. And it also has, you know, this person also has an expired contract. From the NFL's website, it went as such. If his original team offers him a one-year contract and the league minimum based on his credited seasons, the player can negotiate with other teams. So you have all of these different types of restricted players. Again, a reason why the NFL owners kind of started to agree to this, because if they can place restrictions on players that were less than at the time, you know, the original agreement five years, well, hey, well, I still have some power here to wield. But maybe you're wondering what an accrued season really means. The NFL kind of described this by saying the player has to have been on full play status for six games in the season. Also, the player under contract must report to the team at least 30 days prior to the start of the regular season. Okay, so the restricted free agents, now that was a big one for the owners. But the second reason that the owners submitted, you know, not just because of fine, I give in, let's just get this thing done. It was something that was really close to their hearts. That cheddar, the money, the moolah, whatever you want to call that dough. They cared about their money at the end of the game. So, one of the reasons why they also agreed, the second reason, was because a salary cap was placed in play. That way they could control the floodgates of all these rising salaries from teams, you know, trying to bring these players over and players jump and ship and all that thing. Uh, Reminded me a little bit of the AFL-NFL merger. You can learn about that in some previous episodes as well. So, a little bit, I, I won't say it backfired on the players, but it brought their high a little bit down. Because that first 1994 salary cap that was set in place was for $34.6 million. Now compare that to today, the 2019 salary cap is $188.2 million, up from 177.2 last year. So that's an $11 million increase. And we'll get into more about the salary cap in another episode, but it includes many things, not just salaries. There's dead money, carryovers, and, and other things that involve. And of course, the reason why and how much of a percentage. But like I said, let's get into that in another episode. For now, we're just going to cover the third reason why the owners caved. I mean, there's a lot of different stipulations, but the third primary reason was franchise and transition tags are now going to be in play. You don't lose your top dog, or at least you don't lose them without a fight. The exclusive and non-exclusive franchise tags are the current situation in the NFL. A non-exclusive franchise tag comes with this stipulation. It would be a one-year contract, and the salary would be for the greater of cap percentage average of players at the position or 120% of the player's previous salary. Teams still hold that first right of refusal. Players are free to negotiate, but if that original team has five days to match that offer if they do come up with something. And of course, if that original team lets the player walk, then they would be entitled to two first-round draft picks from that team. So again, not happening a whole lot. Now, there's also an exclusive franchise tag meaning that the players cannot negotiate with other teams. This is a one-year contract as well, but the salary is going to be a little bit higher. It's either the greater of the top five salaries in this position or 120% of his previous year's salary. Last year, perfect example, Le'Veon Bell. One argument was that he was either a running back or a receiver because he wanted to be paid like both. 
let's just take the 2019 salary cap hit for a running back and a wide receiver. A running back, he would only get paid, (laughs) only, what am I saying, comparatively, only get paid $9.099 million. A receiver would get paid $14.794. So we're talking almost $6 million difference. Of course, that was one thing that led to the holdout. But we don't want to get into all that holdout business right now. We just want to move on to the transition tag. This is the other tag that can be slapped upon a player. If this happens, then they would either get the greater of the salary of the top 10 players at their position or 120% of their previous year's salary. If a player is hit with the transition tag, he can negotiate with any team. If they're offered by another team a new contract, the current team still has the right to match within five days. If no match, the new team gets a player without having to give up any draft picks. So that's kind of critical in knowing if it's a franchise tag or a transition tag. Now, multiple franchise tags, that's another story to behold. Again, Le'Veon Bell dealt with this. Second time, if a player gets that franchise tag two years in a row, then that player automatically gets a 120% salary increase. The third time tagged, then they're either going to get the greater of the quarterback tag price, 120% of the top five prior salaries, or 144% of the second franchise tag salary. So if you really want to keep this guy or you want to have some kind of trading power and you're willing to give him a franchise tag for three years, you better to pony up those cheddarbacks because you're going to have to pay out some good moolah. Again, this is just part of the current agreement between the NFLPA and the NFL, which was part of the negotiations for the collective bargaining agreement. And to give you an idea of how big the document is, the latest collective bargaining agreement was dated August 4th of 2011. This document is a 316-page legal document. Now, I'll tell you what. If you want to go ahead and read this bad boy, I'll leave a link to it in the show notes for you. And by the way, you can get to the show notes through your podcast player of choice or by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com. Also, I ask that you subscribe for free to the show by mashing that little subscribe button on your podcast player of choice. That way you get the freshest, hottest out the press episodes each and every week. But after, finally, all of this craziness between the NFL players and the NFL owners and all this litigation and lawsuits and all these other things that I don't like talking a whole lot about, there was victory for the players, or at least mostly victory. And they were able to be free and they were able to have free agency, well, kind of, the way that they envisioned it. There was an article in the Sports Illustrated magazine on March 15, 1993. It chronicled a little bit of the Reggie White saga, but It also, you know, led into some things as far as free agency goes. And there's a quote from the article I want to share with you, and it goes as such. Welcome to the American way, NFL style. On March 1st, when wholesale, unrestricted free agency officially descended upon the league, 298 players enjoyed their first real taste of freedom since high school. Again, we're not going to say that that was really their first, you know, freedom since high school or anything. That wasn't even true unrestricted free agency because there was a lot of stipulations. But it was a lot better than what the players had dealt with in the past. And like I said from the beginning of the episode, this culminated in that saga of Reggie White, just like Chuck Norris roundhousing dudes in the back of the forehead, he would end up signing with the Green Bay Packers. Now this was the last place that everyone thought he would go. And he was known to help out a lot of people. And he always talked about wanting to go to the big city so he could help the inner city youth. But I'll tell you what, free agency, now that made probably a little bit of a difference. And I'm sure he had all those kinds of things going on, but 
no matter what anybody says. Even though his big press conference, he continued to, I won't say refute this uh, idea, but I'll tell you what, money talks. And when free agency's open and there's just dollar bills thrown at you, then you're probably going to take a look at it. And players do go for championship caliber teams. And like I said, made that joke about going to my cousins, visiting down in Houston so we can hang out on the weekends. But at the end of the day, this is a business. They are employees and they need to get their next paycheck. Because at the time, now they thought that they had a chance with the Green Bay Packers to go get that promised land title. But the Packers weren't really looking like that hot of a team during the late 80s to early 90s. However, this free agency signing, the most significant of all time for the NFL, it did shift the power of the NFC back to the Packers. Just with this signing, the most significant signing in free agent NFL history. Ultimately, four years later, those are four short years later, they would end up hoisting that Vince Lombardi trophy. So yeah, I think that free agency, it worked for the pack. And with that being said, did your team land your personal coveted free agent this year? If it did, or even if you didn't, I'd love to hear about your story. I can share it on the podcast. And if you want to do that, you can do so by heading over to myfootballmoment.com. Because at the end of the day, this is a league for the fans. And to culminate that, Here's a quote from Joe Horrigan, executive director of the Professional Football Hall of Fame, that sums it up. I think free agency has been great for the game for a lot of reasons. Look at us. We have a whole season now for the fan. It's keeping the NFL front of mind. 24-7, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Football History Dude and we're able to gain some knowledge nuggets of how important the Reggie White-led bandits back in 1993 were to the explosion of year-round NFL coverage. Now next week, I'm going to go way back and talk about the first player that actually stood up against the NFL. Now this was in court over labor issues. We're also going to jump our toes into the shallow end of the history of the NFL PA. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode football history dude to make sure you're the first to get the next episode please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to the football for the show notes and more information on the history of the nfl and remember dudes where we're going we don't need roads hey there sports history fan this is arnie chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? 
Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.